hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm a practicing internist and cardiologist in Dallas, Texas. Many of you know me because over the course of the last four years, I have been relentless in bringing people the truth regarding SARS-CoV-2, the virus, the infection, its origins, how it's impacted us individually and our families, our friends, our countries. And I can tell you that we have been played. We've been played by a biopharmaceutical complex. This is a very, very important development that's happened to the entire world. And I've outlined this complex in my book, Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalizations and Deaths While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex. The first author is John Leake. Many of you know John is a best-selling true crime author who's considered now one of the world's greatest historians. Well, I have to tell you, after 18 months of wonderful sales, five-star ratings on Amazon, on September 29th, Amazon struck our book down. It took it off the platform, said it had offensive content, clearly bogus allegations. We appealed three times. Amazon could not point out where the offensive content was. And, you know, we think what was behind that was an attempt by the biopharmaceutical complex to injure me or injure John professional reprisal for our speaking out very publicly against the government false narrative. And the false narrative started at the very beginning regarding the uh, spread of the virus, its severity, mortality, hospitalizations, the suppression of early treatment, the crushing blows that we received as we tried to take care of patients, and then the rollout of the disastrous COVID-19 genetic vaccines. And sadly, two-thirds of the world's population took one of these vaccines, and now we are picking up the pieces with record injuries, disabilities, and deaths due to COVID-19 mass vaccination. You know, I'm playing in the background of this monologue a beautiful piece by Lydia Munchinsky, and it is uh, titled Songs for the Morning, and I had a wonderful start to the music segment of the McCullough Report by uh, the long arm of Eric Clapton, a great friend and terrific performer. And periodically I featured artists on the show, including Five Times August and so many other wonderful artists. Lydia came into my circle, sent me an email and said, Dr. McCullough, I've been following you from very early on, actually from my Senate testimony my historic U.S. Senate testimony, November 19th, 2020. And as, as many of you know, I went on several times in the Texas Senate, multiple state Senates, U.S. Senate for a total of three times, European Parliament, Arizona Senate, now the bicameral Southwest Intergovernmental uh, Committee. I can tell you I remain bold and I remain relentless with respect to bringing people the truth about the pandemic and 
and really what the next twists and turns will be. Remember to follow me as well on Pulse every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern. I am actually co-hosting a show with our nation's uh, leading freedom fighter, and that's Malcolm Out Loud, the host of the uh, Out Loud News platform. Malcolm and I discuss topics. We uh, have it organized. We agree, actually, on the topics in the few days before the show. We cover the topics and we cite the information that we're discussing. And then we actually take your questions. So as you have questions that come in, they're curated. And Malcolm will pitch these questions and we'll tackle them one by one. You know, answering questions is part of leadership during a time of crisis. And it is an absolute shame that governments all over the world never held open forums for people to ask questions about what was going on uh, in the pandemic and in their lives and what they could do to take reasonable steps to protect themselves and their family members. Uh, So Malcolm and I have taken up the charge. We are coming up on 90 Q&A sessions on America Out Loud Pulse every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern. Now, the McCullough Report is always Saturdays and Sundays, 2 p.m. Eastern, and then it goes on the Apple iHeart Uh, podcast network, and it is one of the most widely listened to medical podcasts in the world. And we thank you so much for your um, loyalty to the program, helping us develop it over time, including the music segment. So thanks to to Lydia on this uh, part of the McCullough Report to hear her wonderful music in the background, uh, a real treat. Now, a couple updates. I do want to get you uh, completely updated on Uh, some key papers that have been summarized. So make sure you go to Courageous Discourse Substack. That is the source to get the graphical abstracts uh, and the citations. All of you know the way we should handle things in the pandemic is actually cite published information, whether no matter where it's published, and nothing should be conjecture, nothing should be hyperbolic, everything should be grounded within, uh, you know, within the bounds of uh, the medical literature, and what's been uh, posted. So John Leake, my co-author of Courageous Discourse, uh, posted this week, uh, the title of the post is Italian Fashion Designer da- David Rene Dies at 46. And if you can imagine this, this is a young, f- apparently fit man, suffers a fatal cardiac event, cause of death unknown. Um, uh, he's the former head of women's wear at Gucci, a young and creative man, absolute top of his career. New York Times reports he apparently died of a heart attack. People Magazine characterizes it as a death due to a sudden illness. Um, You know, I can tell you that John Leake and I have gone over this very carefully, uh, and we have a a recent substack on this about fatal cardiac arrests in young people, and you you should take a look at it. We have a link to it in our Courageous Discourse substack. John took this on as actually a form of a true crime investigation without explicitly mentioning COVID-19 vaccines or COVID-19 illness, uh, but to go through an exercise of how we would uh, basically uh, evaluate a sudden death. John has years of being a forensic investigator in Vienna. I have decades of being an internist and clinical cardiologist in practice. And together we are taking a careful look at these deaths and trying to report to you what we think are reasonable conclusions from the information at hand. So take a look at this fatal cardiac arrest in young people. What is causing it and why aren't they, why aren't medical examiners investigating? So go to Peter McCullough, MD, 
www.substack.com and you'll get to all the critical information and make sure you uh, check in each day on the Substack to get the graphical abstracts. That's what people are really interested in. Graphical abstract is the key summary of a paper with the title, the authors, and the key um, figures and tables so you can actually then relay it to someone else. And so in the time remaining, I just want to point out one important post that uh, was posted on November 11, 2023. Title of it is Systemic Review of Published COVID-19 Vaccine Serious Adverse Events. Now, many of you know that the vaccine data reporting safety systems we have to report record numbers of injury, disabilities, and deaths, but they're not peer-reviewed. Uh, they haven't gone through an analysis by uh, scientists and practicing doctors, and they haven't been summarized in manuscripts. Well, this one's important. This one's by Yasmin and colleagues, and it's from 2021. It's summarizing a total of 81 articles in 2021 on messenger RNA vaccines. Uh, it involved 17,636 individuals and reported 284 deaths with messenger RNA vaccines. So it gives you the range of complications. And again, you, you could show this to friends and family and say, listen, this is not conjecture. It's in the peer-reviewed literature. They report pericarditis, myocarditis, myocardial infarction, or heart attacks, arrhythmias. Thrombotic events is the big ticket. Blood clots, 13,893 blood clots uh, with Pfizer, 43 with Moderna at the time since Moderna uh, was just getting out uh, in use. But it clearly concludes that the COVID-19 messenger RNA vaccinations cause these cardiovascular and thrombotic events, and they are a bona fide disaster. So Yasmin et al., make sure you take a look at that graphical abstract. It was published in the journal Immunity, Inflammation, and Disease. It was received July 14, 2022. It was revised December 26, 2022, but it wasn't published until February 24, 2023, I wanted to bring it to light and have you examine it firsthand. Now, in the second half of the McCullough Report, we've got a gripping interview with a doctor, Dr. David Hartsuch, who is a former state senator of Iowa. He's an emergency physician, and you have to hear what he's doing. He is taking on the Iowa State Medical Board for malfeasance. And this will be explained to you, wrongdoing by the medical board in their operations during the pandemic many things that hurt doctors, but more broadly hurt patients because it worked to deny early treatment for SARS-CoV-2 infection, serious COVID-19 illness. So let's get on with the second half of the show today. And you're listening to The McCullough Report. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. Cofix Rx is povidone iodine nasal spray in a 1.25% solution and a spray bottle that actually actuates the povidone iodine into a gentle spray into the nose in order to kill nasal pharyngeal pathogens, the viruses that cause the common cold, paramyxoviruses, other coronaviruses, adenoviruses as an example. Common bacteria including uh, pneumococcus, haemophilus, staphylococcus, uh, streptococcus, all those common organisms that cause sinusitis. Uh, importantly, the uh, product is used with a spray pump up each nostril. Don't hold your head back, just in a neutral position. And there it can be used uh, about three times a day in a 24-hour period. 
when anybody gets sick in the house and Cofix RX is not far away. So go to cofixrx.com and in the promotional code, uh, put in out loud for a discount. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the other side of the microphone, the other side of the video screen, Dr. David Hartschutz. David is uh, yeah, a physician. Uh, he's done so many uh, interesting things in his career. I'm gonna let him give the background of his training uh, and where he is right now in Iowa uh, and we're going to get into a great discussion about medical freedom and civil liberties. David, welcome to the McCullough Report. Peter, it's really great to be here tonight. Um, I, I To give a little background about myself, mm-hmm. I graduated from University of Minnesota Medical School. And during that time frame, uh, I also have a master's of computer science from the University of Minnesota. And during medical school, I had a research assistantship chip uh, writing software for uh, the studying the spread of diseases in population. And uh, I did my residency, three years of, of surgical residency, switched over to emergency medicine at Detroit Receiving Hospital in Detroit. Wow. Yeah, so I've seen a lot of knife and gun club stuff mm-hmm. and came out here to Bentendorf where I was recruited after residency. And I've been a, I, uh, I guess I've been a ER physician for close to 20 years. And um, what I what I did during uh, this the COVID when it broke out is I first of all started by uh, writing a little computer software to model the spread of the disease in the population. Mm-hmm. What I really found out is that this does not follow a normal SERS model. It's completely screwed up in terms of what I thought was happening and. And then I started pursuing the possibility that this could be something other than a naturally spread disease. And that's what I've come to the conclusion of. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. You know, early on, we saw on the TV screen the modeling exercises. And do you remember this uh, University of Washington model? I did my residency at University of Washington. And um, uh, the person in charge of the model, he was on the national TV a lot, like how it was going to spread. And it turns out it was completely wrong. Correct, correct, and and, and that's because this is not a mo- this is not a disease that spreads in a normal fashion. Wow! And so I was all I was wondering why is this? How is this? How is this? And and so what I did is I downloaded all of the data by by county in the United. Mm-hmm. There's three three hundred counties in America, and I downloaded the daily. Um, counts of new cases of COVID. And I looked at those and none of them followed a SERS model. First of all, there's a preponderance of the disease in urban areas, mm-hmm. not rural. And and uh, also, for instance, in, in Iowa, I found out that there were these spikes and you'll see spikes of activity for uh, just a day mm-hmm. where 
And when I say a spike, it's uh, I defined it to be at least 25 cases, at least 25, at least 25 percent higher than the prior seven days. I defined a spike spike that way. Mm -hmm. And if you that, it turns out that only 1.6 percent of the counties in America have a spike on any particular day. If you exclude the other ones, and by the way, it's not always the same counties. It's different counties. And they tend to move, these spikes tend to move around. In a normal SERS model, you see a geometric progression. Mm -hmm. of, you know, the number of cases go, go up exponentially until you reach a plateau and then it dies off and you're, you're, you're over, okay? That didn't happen here with COVID. What, what happened, if you break it down on a county-by-county county basis, you'll find that, that a county, and, and this is going on everywhere, that will have a spike. And they might have a spike, say, every in our area, in Bendorf, Iowa, where I live, it's a spike about every 10 days. And, and then it might move over to uh, Rock Island across the county near us, up to Muscatine, et cetera. So in other words, these spikes are not always in the same place. And I had brought this to the attention of the um, Department of Epidemiology at the University of Iowa, somebody who is modeling the spread of the disease in the population. And he told me that that was just spikiness. That's the technical term, spikiness. And we see that in diseases. So you do see it in, say, AIDS. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens is the disease gets into like a, a, a cohort of people where it spreads the same way. And all of a sudden, you'll see it rip through that cohort and you'll see a spike. Okay. But this isn't like that because in these cases, these spikes occur. Um, to tell you the truth, there's approximately 75 of these spikes on any one day, 1.6% of 3,300 counties. So is about somewhere around 75 uh, counties have spikes. If you take the rest of them that don't have spikes, the 98.4% of the counties, and you look at the number, the rate of increase of the disease in those other counties on any particular day, the average increase is minus 3%. So in other words, in those counties that don't have spikes, you end up with a 3% per day decline in the number of cases. So I'll, let, I'll just say for now it's the mystery. And you know what? Who knows what it is, right? One of the things that I thought was notable is that none of the modelers or any of the people who went on the news, they didn't come on the news and said, hey, America, everybody's going to get it. Right. And if we had the presumption that we were all going to get it, then why bother with masks or lockdowns or social distancing? The only goal of a mask or locking down is to see if you can avoid it. Can you actually dodge the illness? And virtually no one dodged the illness. I, you know, we check antibodies in the office. I, I talk to patients, virtually no one. So it was a wrong assumption to think you were going to get out of this and not get the infection. And, and yet they wasted massive amounts of time and resources with a wrong assumption. Yes, that's right. And, and so if you really look at this for the 98.4% of the counties, that don't have spikes with a 3% decline, it means that this, this disease is not sufficiently contagious mm -hmm. in order to, um, to perpetuate a pandemic. Wow. And this is, 
this is also substantiated. If you look at the, uh, like for instance, influenza, one of the epidemiologic devices they use or studies is they look at when, when you detect a new case of COVID or a new case of flu, how many people in your immediate household are also infected? So typically with influenza, that number is somewhere around 30, 40% of the people in the house also have the disease. Mm -hmm. In COVID, that number is around 15%, which means that in general, if you look at the people who are living with a person who's infected, only uh, about half, it's about half as effective, infective as influenza. Hmm. That's so, that's so interesting. Well, yeah. you know, you made some uh, pretty strong comments at the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons meeting. One of the things you started out with is you said, hey, listen, I've been a state senator of Iowa. So I wanted our listeners to get to know you a little bit. How in the world as a doctor, as an ER doctor who trained at Detroit Receiving, ends up in Iowa? How did you become a state senator? Well, it's kind of funny. My my mother was a very political bird. She liked to go. She was a grassroots activist. And at the age of six, she had me knocking doors for political candidates at that age. She'd go on one side of the street. And back then I went on another side of the street at six years old. And I can remember one tall guy answering the phone or at the door. And I looked up at him and he goes, so tell me. Is this Richard Nixon guy a very any a good uh, politician? And I said, well, my mom thinks he is. <laughs> and he goes, well, that's good enough for me. So I've been a political bird most of my life. Uh, when I moved out here to uh, Bendorf, Iowa is a very political state. That's it's right. Our first in the nation status. This is the first. Uh, this is the first place where I ever saw around, any any president was here. And that was Ronald Reagan. And when I was here, I used to be an auditor. And so I was auditing a feed mixing plant out in Ankeny. And Ronald Reagan was there. And that's when I saw him. Uh, but until moving here, all of a sudden, we see all the presidential candidates. We see, you know, we sit down with them at, at a table and discuss things with them. It's a very personal, upfront approach to politics at the presidential letter level. And it, I think it's an amazing thing here. Um, but, um, so I, that's what got me involved with politics. But what happened was I was going up with a, against a very, uh, longstanding Republican, a powerful Republican. And, and yet she actually was more like a Democrat than a Republican. Well, uh, well, so, so this is a state Senate race, but what made you decide to jump into it? I mean, a lot of people, you know, try to become a, a representative before they become a senator. And, uh, you know, what motivated you to actually do this? I think I was working on the Bush campaign back then and happened to meet another uh, senator from Hawaii who happened to be out here on that campaign. And I told him about what I've been thinking and what, what we're faced with in the Senate. And he said, He's the one who talked me into running. And, and basically, when you run in America, it's a, you roll up your sleeves and it's a lot of door knocking, a lot of knocking doors and talking to people. And I probably have knocked on 30, 40,000 doors. Oh, know. my Lord. Well, yeah, you don't you don't get to be a state center without knocking on doors. And, 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 and how about all the money for advertisements and things like that? How do you do all that? Well, the thing about it is I never had the money. Uh, mine were always low-budget 
campaigns. And I don't think you necessarily, I mean, the truth is in larger campaigns, you do need the money. But when you're knocking on doors and meeting people face to face, that's the way you win elections. And that includes uh, presidential races as well. Hmm. Um, you know, the the French prime minister, um, not the current one, the one before it was, uh, I forgot his name, but anyhow, they knocked on every, 90% of the doors in France got knocked to get him elected to president. And they left the other 10% randomly to find out the effectiveness of door knocking. Mm -hmm. Door knocking is by far the most effective way to get elected to office. Did, did you ever hold any forums to just have town halls where people came out and gave you input? I had a few events, uh, but generally it's the door knocking that's going to get you elected. Wow, that's so impressive. Did you visit churches or schools? Or Yeah, that quite I, I visited a lot of churches, but quite frankly, that was a very, a very uh, lonely experience to visit all these other churches. I was amazed at how much, uh, how often the churches were so introverted that they don't reach out to newcomers who come into the, the church. A person can walk into a church and sit there, stand there in the coffee hour or whatever, and not one person will talk to them, typically. Oh, wow. I know that's true. Yeah. If the Christian church wants to stand up and do something, go up and talk to the people who you don't know at church. That is the I think that's one of the biggest ways for the church to make an impact in our communities. Just talk to the people who walk in your door. It's true. I, I, I noticed that, you know, years ago, I was at a hospital system and they had a like a church lecture program. And we would, um, you know, go and say a few words about prevention of heart disease. So I went to all these different churches and we'd go to, you know, churches in South Dallas, some areas that were. I think kind of underprivileged, underserved, and and some of these churches. I remember sitting in one, and it was pouring rain outside. There was ten people in the audience. Uh, the minister was uh, preaching. It was fire and brimstone, and the water was pouring in from a roof that wasn't repaired. And my wife and I were sitting there, and I was waiting for my turn to say something. And I said, "Oh my lord, um, you know, church is not the same for all of us." everywhere in the country. And it was just, uh, you know, sometimes these experiences are the ones you remember Absolutely. over time. Uh, but so you took on this longstanding Republican, you're a Republican yourself. Uh, here you are, you're a doctor, and you're taking on this longstanding Republican who is becoming more like a Democrat over time. And what year was this? This was in 2006. Wow. And then what happened? Well, I won that election by about 110 votes which is a very short margin, and then won the primary, went on to win the general election. And um, so both the primary and my general election were very narrow. We're in a very narrowly Republican district. And uh, How many votes did you win the general election by? It was about the same, about 150 maybe, a little more. Wow. And then um, how many senators are there in Iowa? Uh, we have uh, – oh, you hit me on the spot there. <laughs> we have uh, – I believe it's 99 senators. 99. Uh, so you are one of 99. And how long was your term? Back up. There's 100 House members and 50 senators. Yeah, 50. Okay, sounds right. So 50 senators. And then how long was your term? Uh, four years. It's four-year term. Wow. 
And then I got voted on the next primary. I got primaried out. Once, once you start doing the right thing, you become a target very quickly. Wow. So then you were defeated at the next primary, huh? Yeah. And I, I'm sure you know, Peter, yourself. Once you stand up, take a stand, do what you're doing, you become a target. Well, what were some of the big issues then? So this is 06 that you were taking a stand on. Well, the big one there was same-sex marriage, uh, pro-life issues. Um, we had, um, the, it was the complete homosexual agenda. The big trifecta is they wanted uh, 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 public accommodation laws uh, and requiring that uh, same-sex marriage was the big issue, was probably one of the big ones. Uh, certain gun issues, they were working to take away guns from people and uh, one of one of the things that uh, you know the the red flag laws were were actually trying to be passed at that level, and so that was kind of a big one. The medical issue, honestly, I took a I took opposition against the HPV vaccine. That was a that was kind of a big issue, and uh, the people who were promoting that were saying, "Oh, you're you know you got to save women's lives by making sure that everybody gets the HPV vaccine." But I think the thing that, that, that convinced me was if you looked at the randomized controlled trials for the HPV vaccine at that time, uh, you had five, five women who got Guillain-Barre uh, in, the, in the treatment group, but zero in the control group. Mm. You know, if it were, and, the, and they considered that not statistically significant. Well, it isn't statistically significant if you really look at it, but it is significant to get five cases of Guillain-Barre with a rather small sample. I think it, I think the the end on that was like five hundred. It was it was even small. Right. So an important point is that we don't actually apply statistical significance on safety events because the clinical trials never declare them as primary endpoints. We simply report them as crude data. Yes. So, you know, five versus zero, and then you look at that and ask if you're if that's, you know, clinically important or is that worrisome to you as a potential patient? And what I've been impressed with the HPV vaccine is the clinical vignettes. I was asked to meet a young woman. She was 17. And when she was 14 years old, she's perfectly normal, fine, completely normal, you know, athletic. She takes the HPV vaccine and then she has a syndrome uh, that rapidly develops a neurologic syndrome. To me, it looked like multiple sclerosis, but it's very rapidly uh, evolving. She's in a wheelchair. She's wheelchair bound. And I talked to the mother and the mother was very clear that she was fine before the HPV vaccine. So I think it's these neurologic cases like this, Guillain-Barre, uh, other types of de demyelinating uh, lesions that happen that have people, I think, concerned enough about HPV. And then interestingly, on the efficacy side, do you know what's the single greatest challenge to the HPV vaccine in terms of does it do anything, reduce transmission? It's actually gay sex, homosexual. And so men having anal intercourse, there's been some very good studies because that's a very promiscuous lifestyle using uh, anal swabs and what have you. And it turns out it's very modestly protective. Very, I mean, it's modestly protective. When I did three years of surgical residency, I remember a homosexual man who had a large H, uh, you know, a, um, condyloma. Right. Coming, and it was about the size of a small cauliflower. 
Yeah, and you can imagine how many viral particles that thing has. Yes. And uh, yeah, what, what we're talking about is a, a, a an anal a condyloma or a you know a large uh, papilloma. These skin lesions are teeming with the virus, and um, when the men you know have anal sex with one another. And, right. and so the spread of HPV uh, in the, that community is massive. And, and the vaccine has a, a, a very modest impact. It does something, but it's, it certainly doesn't, you know, save everybody from HPV. So the, the efficacy was, was clearly oversold. And uh, well, it's interesting that you, that you took that stand. Now, what we're going to do now is we're going to take a break uh, to hear from our sponsors. And then we want to get on the second half of this interview with David Hartshutz. We're going we're to want to talk about... Um, uh, you know, what he's doing now uh, and, and a really a strong stand that we've seen during the pandemic. You're listening to the McCullough Report and Courageous Discourse Substack. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. One of the biggest advances in nutraceuticals and supplements is healthy cell. And the healthy cell line is extensive I typically focus on the microgel technology, three major products here, Immune Super Boost, the Focus and Recall, and then the REM Sleep Supplement. Each one of these is complementary, and they can uh, have a role, I think, in the health of your life each and every day. I know they do in my case. Many of you know, after COVID-19 twice, I spent almost the entire year in 2022 with the upper respiratory tract illness. Now, thankfully, and I've been diligent with the immune super boost in the morning, followed by focus and energy, and then in the evening time, the REM sleep supplement. The microgel technology works, and boy, does it work fast. So go to our website, America Out Loud Talk Radio, find the banner bar for Healthy Cell, click on it, and that'll take you to the site to get a discount on your purchase of all Healthy Cell products. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. The Natural Colon Cleanse. It's the ultimate digestive tune-up with Oxy Powder. It's crafted to alleviate the discomfort of gas, bloating, and occasional constipation. There's a reason why Oxy Powder is our number one seller. It works. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. We're having a fascinating conversation with Dr. David Hartsuch, and he is an emergency room physician. He is in Iowa, trained at Detroit Receiving, one of the toughest places to train in the entire United States. David, you know, I know about that because 
I landed in Michigan in 1991 after I finished at University of Washington. I did rural medicine. And then in the third year of my commitment, I went to the University of Michigan School of Public Health. I went on and did my fellowship at William Beaumont Hospital at the time. So I was there uh, in the early 1990s. I don't know if that was before or after you or about the same time. Uh, I think I would have known. I would have been there from like 2006 to 2000, somewhere in that range. Okay. So I was there before you in Southeast Michigan. And um, gosh, around 2006 or so, I was, um, gosh, I was a, a division chief at Beaumont. So you and I were in Detroit at the same time. And periodically, I actually go down to Detroit receiving uh, the Detroit Medical Center. A lot of people don't know that's in urban Detroit. And it's um, uh, in many ways, it's serving, uh, I think, some of the the, the most uh, underserved, uh, stressed populations on earth. It, it, it is a very similar to Parkland Memorial Hospital in Dallas, where I trained or um, Charity Hospital in New Orleans when it was open, Cook County in Chicago when it was uh, open, L.A. County. There's just a few of them uh, there. And you're right. It is the gun and knife club. You are so battle trained. And, yeah, and I was real amazed to see how much uh, very primitive, raw disease we saw there, which was never, you know, large fungating breast you know, breast cancers, things like that, that you would never see anywhere else. Something you'd probably see in a third world country. Yeah, that you would, you would see it. But you know what, when um, a lot of people who are not doctors, they don't understand this, but when doctors go for medical training, many times it's not in a destination place. It's not like a beautiful place to live. Uh, we're going there actually for special aspects of training. So we're ready. So we actually see the right. most severe and and extreme situations. So that way we're battle tested. So you'll see ER doctors like David uh, training at Detroit receiving. You know, my son right now is an ER resident and he's doing his uh, residency up in Pittsburgh at Allegheny General Hospital. And same thing, they're seeing that that's that really intense environment in right. the inner city. And it's a lot different than being a you know an ER doctor in Boca Raton or, or someplace like that. So we, let's, always, we, used to use, we used to joke a little bit about Beaumont because you were kind of the kind of the cream of the crop up there, uh, you know, kind of uh, ethereal air. It, it's true. But I tell you, the one thing at Beaumont, now I wasn't in the emergency room, uh, but I can tell you for cardiology, what we had uh, developed over time is is a program for primary angioplasty. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, and, and we did the backbreaking work of getting out of bed and uh, doing emergency heart catheterizations all night long. And so, uh, you know, it was one of the few fellowships in the country where we slept in the hospital. And yeah. so uh, as fellows, because it was just too intense. And we did that for three years. And you, um, we would uh, give uh, TPA at night. They would only do casts during the day. Right. So no, we did it 24 by seven. We were one of the first and we, you know, we had a huge clinical program, huge interventional program. And, uh, but we changed care in the United States. It was, it was one of the most gratifying things I've ever seen in clinical research. It all came out of uh, Beaumont hospital. And, and then of course, many other hospitals came along. Now let's, let's transition. Now uh, you made some really strong statements at the association of American physician surgeons meeting on you know, medical civil liberties and some, right. some concrete action steps you're taking right now. Sure. 
So my, I, I currently have a lawsuit against the Board of Medicine, the Board of Pharmacy in Iowa, and it's for, uh, the, for, for trampling on the First Amendment rights of patients to hear about COVID and, die, and the corollary right for doctors to speak about COVID. And simultaneously, patients also have a 14th Amendment right to be treated for COVID, and doctors have a corollary right to treat COVID. And, and so the, the lawsuit itself um, is based on the idea that the, the Board of Medicine has been carrying out, a, you know, across, you see this across the country, where the Boards of Medicine are carrying out investigations for spreading misleading information about COVID, right? You've heard that. It's going on everywhere. But there is no definition of what misleading means. And so, therefore, all they're really doing in order for a doctor to not uh, undergo investigations is to not speak about COVID at all. And so most of the other lawsuits that are in play, because like there's a large one out in California with a bunch of doctors and there's other, other cases. But in my case, I'm focusing on the rights of the patient. I've assumed third party standing to represent the rights of the patient and the rights of the public. And this is allowable because this is what the, the Supreme Court has determined that we as doctors have an aligned interest with our patients to see that they are properly treated. They themselves, having COVID, would not have standing normally because you're either gonna die or you're either going to get better and you're not gonna be have the long case anymore. Whereas I, as a doctor, have a have a, a, an aligned interest to see that all my patients are treated. And so I've assumed third party standing in this case. But the case itself actually started back in uh, 2020, July, uh, in um, it was March of 2020 when Donald Trump called hydroxychloroquine the game changer. And within days, all of the boards of medicine across the country put statements out to their doctors that said, don't prescribe the drug mm. Mm. now they did it in a backhanded kind of way it was kind of you know suggesting that you might be you know uh disciplined if you do it and and it was it was all innuendo enough to scare or chill the behavior of doctors so that they would not prescribe the disease and also they claimed that there was a shortage of the drug which really there wasn't and uh at this you know the, so what I did is I went to the, uh, being the center I am, I said, okay, the board put out this statement. I'm going to see where they approved it. And so I looked at the minutes of the board meeting. Oh, they never even took up the subject. Hmm. Other, this statement got sent out without the board even knowing it. Yeah. And so what is, this is called non-felonious misconduct. This is a crime. Non-felonious non misconduct is when a public official tries to get you to do something that they don't have the authority to get you to do. So like in this case, let's say it's Joe Schmo who works at the board and sends out this memo. He doesn't have the authority to work on the behalf of the board, but he sends out the letter anyway without board approval. And it and it's from the board. That's now called- David, David, uh, how many- Medical boards in the United States, do you think this happened where they skipped, uh, you know, due process and procedure? 
I think it happened to all of them. I think that. Oh nobody, my lord! I, I I think that all the boards are that way. It's it is, and because this is stemming from the Federation of State Medical Boards. Mm-hmm. Federation of State Medical Boards um, got a letter from the federal uh, the FDA. The FDA sent a letter to the Federation of State Medical Boards, and they also sent a letter to the Federation of Pharmacists. And so what happened is. They said, look, we got this little problem here. We got to get ivermectin not being used because we need that precious emergency use authorization for mm-hmm. the next. That's really what be, what is prompting this. But in order for you to have the emergency use authorization, there cannot be a cure for the disease. That's federal law. Mm-hmm. And so what happened is they said, okay, I guess we'll have to make it so there's no cure. And so what they did is they went down to the boards and said, okay, Board of Pharmacy, I want you to get all of the pharmacists to not fill these prescriptions. And Board of Medicine, I want you to keep the doctors from writing prescriptions for the drug. That way, there will be no treatment options. That way, we can have the vaccine. And so what happened is, when I I realized that the board had never voted on this, I petitioned the Board of Medicine to consider the use of hydroxychloroquine. I wanted them to consider what they'd already been sent out to the doctors. And I presented them scientific information about the use of hydroxychloroquine. And I submitted a petition to them to please retract their original uh, statement and put on a new statement allowing this. And guess what? They saw it my way. Okay. Really? Yeah, I won. Okay. You would think that would be the end of it. But in fact, I requested the, from the director, I requested that they please send out the revised joint statement to all licensees so that they could know what the official position of the board was. Keep in mind, they had, everybody got an email that said, don't use the drug. Mm-hmm. I got the the board to agree that we should all use the drug. And, wow. the, and the director refused to send out an email to the licensees. And instead, we'll just put it on our website. So the way I see these the boards in our state, and this is probably true of other states, is this is, this is basically a do-nothing board that is there to rubber stamp whatever the bureaucracy underneath it mm-hmm. does, okay? And and so uh, what happened was, this would have been October by the time they approved it, and the following week, a friend of mine called me and said, hey, look, uh, I have COVID. Would you treat me with hydroxychloroquine? And I thought about two seconds, and I said, sure, because I had just gotten them to approve it, right? So I started treating that, and after a while, the pharmacists, uh, we're starting to say, well, what what is this for? Is this for COVID? If it's for mm-hmm. COVID, we're not going to fill it. And so I found it very difficult to get a, a prescription filled for COVID or for uh, hydroxychloroquine. So I switched to ivermectin. And actually, I, my personal belief is ivermectin is a much better drug than hydroxychloroquine, yeah. Yeah. more effective. Um, and, and so I started using ivermectin. And nobody ever, nobody ever asked me what it was for. It was completely easy to get it, you know. But then what happened it later on, the pharmacist got wise to ivermectin. 
And the other, by the way, the other drug, I, I, I got to have a, you know, there has to be a uh, uh, an honorable mention to indomethacin. And nobody ever talks about indomethacin. Man, I think there were so many of my patients that I gave them ivermectin. They had other symptoms. I gave them the indomethacin. It it took care of those other symptoms. And the numbers needed to treat on the on the, the studies for indomethacin show that for every seven, seven people you treat, you're going to save one hospitalization. There you go. The, sadly, the people who got no treatment, those are the ones, the high-risk ones that were hospitalized. It was all about getting some combination of drugs to them. It doesn't even have to be drugs. Look at the supplements. Yeah. I treat people with resveratrol and I've quercetin, resveratrol, uh, vitamin D, vitamin E, vitamin C, uh, you know, all of that. My brother and I have a kind of, my brother had a little newsletter going to inform people about how to treat COVID. And he and I had a running joke that uh, there's very little, there's very little, there's very little in the world that doesn't treat COVID. <laughs> there, you know, while the government says there's no treatment, oh, heck, we have so many treatments for well, we We had so many treatments and we actually had some happy learnings. Um, you know, I think one of the happiest stories was vitamin D. And all the data on vitamin D was positive. Nobody ever refuted it. And and what I learned over time, you know who influenced me in the McCullough Protocol on vitamin D was um, someone named Dermot O'Flynn. And he's Eric Clapton's uh, personal doctor. So I met uh, Dermot. He's a natural doctor. And, you know, I, I, I'm a I'm an MD. I'm, I prescribe medicines. I'm not a naturopathic doctor. But he convinced me. He goes, you get to high enough doses of vitamin D, he says, you, you know, it has a therapeutic effect. It's not just a preventive thing. So, uh, you know, I end up inching up, I, uh, you know, now the McCullough protocol is 20,000 units a day for five to 30 days. And I recently talked to some other experts and they're saying 50,000 a day. So, right. yeah, so you can go higher. So, um, so you took them downtown on uh, hydroxy, they capitulated, but yeah. then the pharmacist, no matter what, they, they still weren't going to get the drugs to patients. So what was your next move after that? Well, around that time, uh, I've been I've been using ivermectin, and so that would have been up through probably around August of 2021, I believe. Uh, and at that point, around that time, I discovered that um, I discovered that uh, salt solution could be used to treat this disease. The disease itself, the virus enters cells with H2 receptors, which are responsible for reabsorbing sodium into the into the body and so when the virus goes into those cells your body loses the ability to reabsorb sodium and so i found out the, the discover the importance of replenishment of salt into people's bodies the 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 sine qua non of this disease was profuse sweating mm-hmm. and like wet the bed type of sweating like you've never had it before often people would have uh, polyuria concentrated urine, and then uh, a very salty taste in your mouth. Most people regard it as metallic. Most people view it as metallic. I viewed it as salty. And we were, I I discovered this because I treated a family. Everybody got better except the, the the grandfather. And I listened to him on the phone in detail, did a detailed history of this. And he was spread, sweating profusely, and I realized that he was salt-wasting. And I didn't know why he was salt-wasting mm. at that time, but I told him, give him some salt, and he'll get better. 
he gave they gave him some salt and he got better and uh so then i uh i went on myself my wife my family went out on a trip to yosemite and we were in california and we all came down with covid and of course you it was in that state there's no way you're going to get hydroxychloroquine ivermectin mm. anything. and and i and uh, what happened is i got up it was two o'clock in the morning and i had been up every hour urinating my bed was just dripping with sweat i didn't want to go back to bed and i was sitting there watching and all of a sudden tears were streaming down my face and i was looking at the clock it was two o'clock in the morning i said what is going on here and and i felt a salty taste in my mouth and you know occam's razor what do they all have in common what they have in common are those ace2 receptor cells that are not working hmm. so that's the tearing was not emotional or chemical or anything like that it was just that the tear drops one of my patients by the way her presenting symptom of covid were salt crystals on the side of her eyes so Sodium dysregulation is a very important thing in this in this uh, disease. And if you look for it, uh, like for instance, ophthalmologists they talk about a uh, COVID-associated conjunctivitis. Mm-hmm. It's not a conjunctivitis. It's not bacterial. It's not. It's actually just that there's salt water basically in the eyes. So, uh, doctor, what was your home remedy for the salt solution? What could what what did people do at home, or what could they do? Right. So you take one liter of water, mm-hmm. one teaspoon of sea salt, and mm-hmm. one teaspoon of baking soda, and then you drink it down. Okay. Is it? Can you tolerate that? Uh, it tastes pretty bad. And the reason why I started this, I looked on the internet for a rehydration. I thought everybody needs salt rehydration. And so I found the University of Michigan had one for two teaspoons of, of, of sea salt in a liter. And I, I tried it myself, and honestly, not even palatable. I don't I don't mm-hmm. like that. So maybe I can make it more palatable by taking out one of the teaspoons of sea salt and adding one teaspoon of bicarb. And when I did that, it was it was fairly palatable. Mm-hmm. Now, now, how does that compare to Pedialyte or something like that? Pedialyte does not have enough sodium in it. Okay. Gate does not have enough sodium. Uh, I found out, I did uh, three, I, I, I tested the sodium loss, urine sodium excretion, on 10 of my patients who had gotten out of the hospital mm-hmm. and screening between 10 and 11 grams a day. What? Got- so tremendous salt wasting. Tremendous. Well, and- well, you know, one point uh, I learned over time, I'm a cardiologist, so I use these drugs a lot. I learned to actually have people hold their diuretics because diuretics would make things worse. And, uh, my practice partner, Brian Proctor, uh, he was one of the early treatment heroes. He actually used in IVs, intravenous uh, normal saline, uh, a fair amount, uh, you, you know, and he felt that some of the people, the older people got hospitalized, they got hospitalized because of dehydration. It wasn't COVID, it was right. dehydration. So if they just actually had the IV support, and I talked to other doctors around the world and they agreed that, that, um, Paying attention to the salt and water balance and actually maintaining volume was an important part of, of ambulatory management. Right. And what I did is I had all of my patients I did telemedicine with, mm-hmm. I had all of them track their weight. And so most of them who had COVID were losing one to two pounds per day. Wow. More severe ones were losing three pounds a day. Now they all just said, well, I'm not eating. 
that wasn't it. The it's their the, the huge amount of water losses, the urine loss, and and also they're they're on apical cells in your chest. There's apical cells that reabsorb the sodium, and when they don't work, that that water goes into the alveoli. And what we're seeing on the chest X-rays is not an ammonia. It's not a re, it's not reactive. This is pure pul focal pulmonary edema caused by infection of the apical cells of the alveoli. Hmm. I had one patient from Godgeville, Wisconsin, and he wanted to uh, me to do a telemedicine. I said, I don't go outside of the state of Iowa. Hmm. And he was in Dodgeville. I said, but you can come to my clinic. It's about two and a half hour drive. And uh, he said, sure, that's what I want to do. And I said, what's your pulse ox? And he goes, uh, 84%. And I said, 84%, you should go immediately to the hospital. And he said, well, come hell or high water, I am not going to the hospital. I've had too many patients die or too many friends die there. Nice. And be, I would rather just die at home. Okay. And I said, well, okay, you can come then. But I want you to take a cup of water, put a half a teaspoon of sea salt and a half a teaspoon of baking soda. Okay. Drink it as you're coming down to my clinic. I want you to stop off in Dubuque, Iowa. And get your ivermectin because none of the pharmacists will give it to you here. But there is a pharmacy in Dubuque that will give it to you. And so I had him stop there and get it. And then I, right. I want you to go to the hospital and I'll put in an order for a chest x-ray. I want you to get there, bring the disc to my office. And this should all take about six hours and I'll see you there. Okay. And so six hours later, he shows up to my clinic and he's telling, and I said, how are you doing? And he said, well. There was a lady at the hospital and she walked very fast and she took me down this very long hall to go get my chest x-ray and she walked at a fast clip and I had no problem keeping up with her. He said, if you asked me four hours ago, could I do that? I'd say no way. And so I checked this pulse ox there in the, in my office and it was 95% on room air. Wow. Well, that, yep, that is so, that's such a great vignette. So that, again, that's the combination, right? So your, uh, your salt, bicarbonate, uh, fluid rehydration, you know, the, the, the really quick effect of ivermectin. Right. Uh, there's, there's two papers, one by Jackie Stone, one by Sabine Hazen. I'm on the Hazen paper. We actually treated patients with ivermectin, O2 sets in the 70s. Yes. And it's called permissive hypoxemia. And they pulled through fine. David, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Great, Peter. Thanks for having me. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Mm -hmm.